0: Uh, If you've missed last week, or, or if you're new, let me bring you up to speed real quick. Over the summer, a bunch of guys have taught, and we've gone through all the different fruits of the, or fruit of the Spirit, all the different aspects of that fruit. And we've looked through what they are, how to apply them in our lives, and that's from Galatians 5. And even though Paul finished up his teaching on the fruit of the Spirit in that chapter, he's not done with this theme of the fruit of the Spirit. He carries it on into chapter 6. So if you're not already there, you can can go ahead and turn to Galatians 6. Paul carries on this theme of the fruit of the Spirit on into chapter 6. And Paul knows that, that just because we have the Spirit, this fruit is not automatic in our lives, it's not without struggle. Believers are still tempted with the desires of the flesh. And even real Christians, those who are indwelt by the Spirit Himself, they can be completely overtaken by these fleshly desires at times. We all know that by experience. And we saw that last week, that the young in the faith, those that are immature, are particularly prone to this sort of being overtaken by the the fleshly desires. That means then we have to learn to do what Paul says. We have to learn to walk by the Spirit. Or as he says in Romans, to put to death the works of the flesh, the deeds of the body, by the Spirit's power. Romans 8, 13. But how are the immature, how are those that are enslaved or ensnared by the flesh, how are they supposed to get out of that trap? That's the million dollar question, right? Paul says that they need help from other people in the body. Or better, they need restoring. That's His language. They need to be mended, like a broken arm, by a more mature person. Or as Paul says in Galatians 6, a spiritual person. Look with me again in Galatians 6. We covered this last week. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it's pretty open-ended. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we saw that last week, Paul's using this term spiritual for the mature believer, for someone whose life is characterized consistently by the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that? Yes or no? Okay. You do remember that. Great. So this believer is not immune from sin. The spiritual person, they're not immune. They're not immune from the flesh. But they do know what the battle involves. They know how to repent. They know how to walk by the Spirit. They know the deceptions of their heart. They know how to renew their minds. They know how to yield their wills to Christ in the moment that they're tempted. They're not perfect. They still fall. But they've learned to walk with Him consistently. That's the issue consistently, and their life shows it because there's fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, right? They're stable. They're settled in the love of God. They're not easily blown about, if you want to use the Ephesians 4 language. They don't trust themselves or their feelings. They trust only what they see in the Word of God. These are the spiritual people that Paul's talking about in this text, people whose lives are characterized by the Spirit's presence, his power, his fruit. And Paul calls on these people to restore the other, another group of people in the church, the people that are ensnared or overtaken by sin. In other words, Paul's telling us that the Spirit doesn't cultivate his fruit in a believer's life in isolation from the other believers. Make sense? He's saying we need help in this, he uses the mature in the body to help those who are less mature get out of habitual sin and into patterns of obedience. So what Paul's saying. it's Not that the Spirit can't work in your life by yourself. He totally can. But here in this text, we see that there's clearly a place, if you're ensnared, that you need help. And for us here in Boundless, in our kind of college and career ministry, this text hits us in several ways. Because we're in different stages, right? Maybe you are the ensnared person, and you need to be restored. If that's you, be encouraged. Because you can find help in the church, from spiritual people. Um, That's Paul's solution here. Or, maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, and you're the spiritual person who knows how to walk by the Spirit. You're not perfect, nobody's saying that, but you know kind of what the battle's like, and you've begun to restore other people. Praise God. But my guess is that most of you would say you're somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. It's not like a separate category necessarily, but you're in the middle. You're being strengthened. Maybe you're struggling with certain sin patterns, but you're not, you're not overtaken necessarily, but you're learning how to fight those sin patterns. You know the Lord is growing you week in and week out as you sit under preaching. Maybe you even have a spiritual person or two in your life that are helping you. And you're in this period of maybe progressive restoration. Maybe you're being restored, you're being strengthened, being equipped to be someone who can restore other people. Probably most of us in this room. But wherever you are on that spectrum, Paul's goal for every single one of us is that we grow to maturity, that we become these spiritual people that he's talking about in this passage, so that we can effectively and gently restore other people. That's his goal, that every single one of us would grow up to maturity, no matter where we are in the process, so we can be people who restore other people. But, when we talk about that, when we we talk about moving in to help someone, even if you're maturing, or even if you are mature, that is a daunting task, right? Right? and the last time some, a friend of yours came to you and just unloaded a significant sin struggle and asked for your help, that's overwhelming. We often feel overwhelmed. We think, where do I start? What do I say? What if I have no idea how to help them? What if I say something wrong? Right? Questions like these just plague even the, even the more mature among us. So what I want to do today is to show you, at least at a very high level, What is involved in this restoration process? If I can get my clicker to work. There we go. You guys see that? I want to show you kind of at a 30,000-foot view what is involved when it comes to this sort of restoration of others. Last week, I answered a bunch of questions about restoration. But I intentionally didn't answer the how question. So today I'm going to preach more of a topical message, kind of like I said, at 30,000 feet for what it looks like for a spiritual person to restore or to mend someone else that's ensnared in a pattern of sin. This is kind of a scope and sequence, if you like that. Um, And just to be clear, I think this is like a faithful scope and sequence, or I wouldn't be sharing it with you, but I'm sure it's not exhaustive. Other faithful pastors might frame this up a little bit differently. If you have different gifts than me, you might kind of think about this slightly differently. But no doubt we're going to be drawn on the same principles. There's a core here um, that I want to that I want to show you. And it's stuff we've talked about before, but I'm bringing it all together in one place. And today will likely leave you with more questions. And that's okay. What I want to do is just get out there and show you, like, at a high level, this is kind of the process. All right, so we're going to call this... Six practical steps on the path to restoration. So people are broken. They need to be mended. And there's steps along that path. Kind of benchmarks. Objectives. So here's the first one. First step is, what I would say is, we need to set the hopeful vision for the people that are coming to us. So, again, I'm just assuming right now, okay, picture this context in your mind. A believer has come to you and they've confessed significant sin, they're looking for help. Okay? That's the context. One of the first things I think about, and I think Paul would agree with me, I think I'm I'm agreeing with Paul. Let 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 me flip that around, all right? Came out way wrong, all right? It's my job, synthesizing the apostles. I don't have any original ideas. I've learned this from Paul, is that we need to set the vision for people. All right, What do I mean by that? I mean that one of the first things we should do is to help them discover the vision for why Christ saved them. Or maybe rediscover it, if they knew it at one time. Christ did not redeem them to leave them enslaved to sin. Christ redeemed them to change them. There is hope, there is everlasting hope for real and tangible change right now, today. And you could go to a hundred passages for this principle. But here's two, I listed them for you in in the outline here. From Titus 2, Paul tells us that we are saved for good works. To be zealous, Christ is creating a people for himself who are zealous for good works. We're learning to say no to the sinful impulses and say yes to to righteousness. That's Titus 2. So save for good works. And not only that generically, like good works, this big open field of, of things we could do. But specifically, Christ has gifted that particular person who's ensnared in sin. They've gifted that person with specific gifts That Christ wants them to maximize for the good of the church. For the advancement of the mission of Christ on earth. And that's our second passage, Ephesians 4. Paul says that every single one of us has been graced with a gift. even Even if you're ensnared in sin. And that person that's ensnared is not going to maximize their gift. They won't steward that gift well if they just stay broken in habitual sin. Christ is ready and willing to help them so that he can make them useful and use them for incredible good in the lives of others. He'll even use this very experience of the habitual sin in the life of another believer in the future because of all the insight that this habitual sin is going to teach them as they come out of it. That's the vision, and that's what Christ is about in the life of a believer. And we have to set that. Because when a believer is ensnared in sin, they're usually not thinking about these things. They're discouraged. They're defeated. They're ashamed. They feel like damaged goods. They feel irreparably broken. And usually when they come to me, they come to me as a last resort. So it often surprises people when I tell them that they need to get on the mend Because I need their gifts to be operative in the church. I need their gifts for my own growth. I might be a mouth in the body, talking, you know, teaching, but they might be a hand and we're both part of that same body and if that hand isn't working, if it's not functioning right, the whole body suffers, Paul says. So I think about that when people come to me, if they're Part of this church, I think, I need you on the mend. Because we've got to work together for the purposes of Christ. You've got to be flourishing in your gifts. And that just sets the whole thing in a, on a trajectory, doesn't it? With a, with a hey, intensity. Like, hey, we, we're, we're moving together. We have to help each other here. And it's hopeful. It's tremendously hopeful. Even if they don't know the way out, Christ will help them. All right, so that's the first step. Set the hopeful vision. A lot more we could say about that. Next step would be get them in church, right? Get them in a healthy church. Ideally, they're already here among us, fellowshipping. But if they're not, get them in the body. Again, one of the first things we want to do is to make sure that they are connected beyond us to the entire ecclesia, to the entire church. Why is that? A few reasons. Number one, sin and Satan drive us toward isolation. Because isolation means further deception. Sin and Satan, they drive us to isolating. You know, nobody just wants to be around a vibrant group of Christians if you're nursing secret sin. It drives you toward isolation. And that isolation just continues to compound the deception that you're already in. There's no truth coming to us from the outside when we are alone. There's no one shining light into the darkened room of our hearts. There's just us, just our deceived thoughts. There's no preaching, no friend asking probing questions. That's danger. So sin and Satan drive us toward isolation. That's why why people in sin need the church. Second, God has designed the church, the local church, as the incubator for our growth. And again, I've I've listed Ephesians 4 in this passage. You see that again in that text. He commands us to gather, Christ commands us to gather together and to have His Word read, to have His Word preached, to have it applied. That's the equipping language of Ephesians 4. He commands us not just to hear it preached, but to actually, as the members, be reverberating that truth among ourselves. We're taking it, believing it, applying it, talking to others about it. That means we're, we're thinking through how we're tempted to be deceived, how, how we can repent from those deceptions and, and put on the truth. The church is that reverberation of the truth, the pillar and the buttress of truth, the, of the truth of Christ. And in the church, he commands us to love each other and take care of each other, to bear our, each other's burdens, and to even restore each other like we're talking about right now. So when someone is ensnared, they need more than just you. They need the entire church body. They need all of the gifts ministering to their need at some level. The preaching and the teaching, yes. But they also need the mercy, the helps, the generosity, the discernment. You need the people that you're discipling to meet other people outside of you to increase the influence in their life toward the good. They need access to qualified elders who can shepherd their souls. They need access to other friends who can spend time with them and reinforce what they're hearing and just be a place a place to come to, a safe place, so to speak, that they can come to and just enjoy the fellowship. That's going to reinforce godliness. That's another reason. God's designed the church for our growth. And then third, people who are ensnared usually have lots of time. Not all the time. Not every, not every person that's ensnared, but... Normally, usually, people who are ensnared in sin have lots of idle time. Isolation plus idleness equals disaster, right? That's disaster. So we want to make sure that those who are ensnared are coming to everything they possibly can at Timberlake. Is that clear? They need to come to everything they possibly can. To boundless, of course to the morning and evening services, that's preeminent. As a rule of thumb, expect them to come to everything you come to because they need it. If you go to a ladies' Bible study, bring them. If you go to Grace and Granite, bring them. Go pick them up. Ring their doorbell. Make sure they're awake. You know, 6 a.m. Where wherever you go, just bring them along with you as time allows. All right? So get them in get them in a healthy church, because that's sort of the incubator. That's that's gonna that's There's streams of help coming to them from all kinds of of areas beyond you. All right, number three, third step, is teach them how to respond to their sin. Teach them how to respond to their sin. If you want a metaphor, there's probably better ones. You know, they've come into the hospital in critical condition. They're bleeding out. And you've got to stop the bleeding. And stopping the bleeding means teaching them how to respond to the sin that they are currently enslaved to, currently entrapped in, ensnared by. Why is that? Why do we need to teach them that? Because it's very rare that people caught in sin are responding rightly and biblically to their sin. Their conscience is inflamed because they're transgressing, and they likely know it. And they're living in constant guilt. We've all been there. So what happens with that guilt, with that conscience that's going off? Well, they, they try to figure out how to make the guilt go away. This is them being wise in their own eyes, right? They're trying to figure out how to make the guilt go away. They're to manage their guilt somehow. And usually it comes in the form of shifting blame. Can, lots of ways we do this. We've talked about this before, but. Shifting blame is, is, a, is an easy way to try to get, get rid of that guilt. You know, of person that's got anger problems. You know, If she wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have blown up. They made me so mad. And we say things like that. And it's. And it's a subtle shift. It's like, that, you caused me to be angry. You're responsible for my sin, not me. Shifting blame, or we kind of just make excuses. You know, I can't help being depressed. Runs in the family. So you're saying your depression is biological and like hereditary? Um, and that's the reason, that's like that your, your, your family line is responsible for, for your unbelief. Or we just relabel our sin as something else, you know, that's not as bad, It's more acceptable. We claim that we're stressed when we're actually sinfully afraid. But the most common is to just ignore our sin. Just ignoring it, just just ignoring the guilt, trying to just mute it and just move on with life. You know, it's like the smoke alarm that's going off. It's telling you there's a fire and you're bashing it out with a, with a baseball bat to try to get the get the smoke alarm off. Now you can just go back to sleep you know, it's just while your house burns down. Um, but that's what we do. That's being wise in our own eyes to try to handle the guilt. Or you might run to an opposite extreme. The alarm's going off, and you might try to put out the fire yourself, kind of self-atone for the guilt. You know, you think things like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, anymore. I'm never going to do this again. Ever. a uh, very high view of yourself there, uh, I'm never going to do this again, you know, or I, I, they pun- you might punish yourself mentally, I'm just terrible, I'm such a failure, why would God even love me, and you just boom, 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 just, boom, boom, boom. you know, you're just trying to give yourself some body blows there to make you feel worse about what you did, you know, because God sees you and he accepts you, because you're self-deprecating. But it often surprises people to know that God's solution is as refreshing as it is simple. Sin is not a minor deal to God. He slaughtered his son for sin, for your sin. But he really does lavishly forgive if we take full responsibility. If we're willing to own our evil with no excuses, He will abundantly pardon every single time. That's the concept of biblical confession. It's not mouthing words, it's taking full ownership of our sin in confession. Is taking full ownership of our sin before God. That's what John's getting at in 1 John 1 9. We preached an entire message on that last year. And John says there, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he won't take excuses. Confession is saying, I'm guilty. You're right, Lord. I am guilty. I deserve judgment. But confession is not all. We've got to help them depend wholly on the work of Christ when they confess. John goes on to tell us that if we do sin, that we must remember and believe that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he says. And he is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. What does that mean? Well, the reason he's making his point is he knows our temptation is to think that we can atone for our own sin by saying the right things in confession. But that's not the case. Confession is saying, I'm guilty. It's that pleading Guilt. Atonement only comes through another. Through Christ and His death for us. God's wrath was poured out on Christ. That's the propitiation. He is poured out on Christ. And we are forgiven and accepted only through Him. But we're fully accepted. Fully forgiven. His obedience becomes our obedience. So we have to help people see that the way out of besetting sin is learning to respond to that sin in a way that pleases Christ. In the way that He's laid out for us, even right after we've sinned. And that path is honest confession, owning it, making no excuses, and laying hold of the naked promises of mercy in Christ. If we don't get this, we will not change. Satan loves to compound our misery by continuing to have us respond sinfully to our sin. So, easy way to remember this in your discipleship ministry, just tell people, don't sin twice. Right? You've already sinned once by blowing up or looking at porn or whatever it is. Don't sin twice. Get back on the path. No matter how far off you go, repentance is one step. Turn around. He's here to meet you. So don't sin twice. We've got to teach people how to respond to their sin. Number four, we also need to teach them to fight by faith. All right, so if you've stopped the bleeding in our step number three, by teaching them how how to... own their sin, confess it, not blame, shift, do those kinds of things, but actually confess and, and, and depend on Jesus for mercy. That's your, the bleeding has stopped now. Now you've got to rehab them. You've got to prepare them to survive the next onslaught that's coming in this besetting sin area. And that is the fight of faith. The fight to believe God above what you think or feel. Basically, what this means is they need to learn to live on God's words above what they think, above what they feel, in that moment of temptation. And that's living by faith. Faith trusts God, and it does not lean on its own understanding, to use Proverbs 3. So those ensnared in sin are living by their fleshly desires. They're living by what they feel. They're living by what they crave, rather than by what God's word says. Now, does that make sense? Now, this implies a couple things. Don't get overwhelmed here, okay? This implies some stuff, right? It implies that first, we're going to need to help them identify those patterns of temptation when they're coming, So, what do you you mean by that? Well, if if you just look at somebody's weak, so the besetting sin is anger, you you might find they they get very angry toward the same person, and it's around a similar set of events. (laughs) All right. Well, that's where we're going to work. We're not going to focus on all these maybe areas that you could focus on. We're going to focus on this one area, this circumstance. Just have them focus there on the one thing and learn the growth process. Through that one portal. I mean, how do you grow? You working on 40 things at once? No. Right? You focus on one thing and get them to learn this growth process through that portal. Identifying the patterns of temptation. Then, because they're living by the fleshly desires in that moment, you'll need to unpack what it is they want and why they want it. Does that make sense? But you've got to be careful here, because Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.22 that we crave evil in our flesh because we are deceived. So that means underneath the desires, underneath those kind of the cauldron of, of, of the flesh and the fleshly desires are deceptions. It's deceived thinking. Lies we've believed. And those are churning up all kinds of evil cravings in our hearts. And then it works like a circle. Those evil cravings just reinforce the lies, you know. And it's this vicious trap. So the person that craves pornography, they want it because they have believed a lie. They believe that it's going to satisfy. They believe that the consequences aren't that severe. I mean, it's just on and on and on and on. lie, 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 lie. You know, just lies all over the place. And they are, they are lies that the Bible blows up. But that person's flesh is deceived, and it wants what it wants because of that deception. So we have to help people unpack those deceptions and battle them with specific passages that help them see a different vision, help them see things as, it, as they really are. The person, we take that pornography example, the person that's tempted with porn needs to load up the Bible's warnings for the impure as well as the blessings for pure, the pure. Does, that's just a start, okay? This is that mind renewal process that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4.23, and that's why I have that up there. Ephesians 4.23, the mind renewal that has to take place. Now, as you're thinking about helping people, this is the most challenging part for most people. It's the most intimidating because it's like, man, what am I going to encounter? And then like, how do I know what truth to apply in that particular situation? And if that's you, if this sounds fuzzy to you, or, or it's intimidating, I'd encourage you, let's just, keep, let's just keep the conversation going, ongoing. Or if you could watch somebody else uh, kind of unpack the lies that someone else is believing, it's very helpful. Like, oh, wow, they asked that question, or, yeah, they, they went there, that's, 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 really, that's really useful. If you can do that, that's, that's ideal. But the best way... To grow in your own discernment is to do this for yourself, right? To recognize your own deceptions and how the truth applies at that level in your own sanctification. That is the biblical way that you take the log out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right, so that's... Let's just leave that there. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Actually, I think I have another bullet point. Unpack the deceptions, and battle with specific passages. That would be kind of a the next shuffle in our step, right? Give you some time to write that one down. It's a little late. Late on the draw there, my PowerPoint. All right. Be thinking of your questions. Try to. I know it seems like, oh, you got two more points. How are you going to work those in? It'll be, they'll be quick. But I got a few more sub points here. All right? Next, tease out what trusting Jesus would look like in that moment of temptation. Tease out what I say here. Yeah, tease out what trusting Jesus would look like in the moment of that temptation for that person. So once you've got that lie exposed, the truth is here. Then you need to ask, what would you do if you really believed that in that moment with that person? What would you say if you actually believed that promise? If you were to heed that warning, the scripture says, if you were to take that as reality above what you feel, how would you act? What good would you do? What would you not do? So let's take that person with social anxiety. Sometimes they don't come to church because the crowd makes them feel uncomfortable. They feel like they don't fit in. People always exclude them. They're ultimately afraid of a number of things, pain, whatever. That's good to know. But God's word says you need the church, that he designed it. It even says that people's sins against you in the church work for your good. It might take some time and it might take a lot of time to work through that with this person. Let's call him a guy, with him. But once those truths are established, now what? Now comes the faith part. What would you do if you really believed that? Well, you would come to Boundless at 915. You would introduce yourself to some people rather than sitting in the back corner you would ask some people some questions about their lives. You would ask if you could sit with a certain group of people that you meet that day. Now, ideally, right, if I'm discipling you, you would be with me, and I would be introducing you to people. I would be making that transition much easier than just throwing you in cold turkey. I'd invite you to my home for lunch. we do a number of things to try to help facilitate that, but you get the point. My point is if, okay, we've, we've, We've blown up that lie that I don't need the church or the church is out to get me. And actually, I do need the church, God's word says, and that even sins against me in the church, even the pain is good for me at some level. So even though I'm going to throw up when I think about crowds, I'm going to obey. I'm not going to live on what I feel, even if I have to pass out, let somebody resuscitate me because it was it was that overwhelming in that moment. Right. Like, we'll we'll get you. It's okay. I passed out before. I almost threw up at, you know, at uh, Boundless Thursday last week, you know. <laughs> Playing basketball. I get it. <laughs> Our bodies do weird things, okay? But my point here is that all those little actions, the coming, the talking, the asking questions, the, that is the putting on of the new man of Ephesians 4.24. And that guy now, as he's doing that, he's acting in this way in spite of what he feels... Because of what he believes. Make sense? And that's what we've got to do. We've got to help people make that shift because we, we're so feelings oriented. We are fighting upstream uh, on, this, on this point. So that could be a mini-series in itself. Next, we've got to help them see how faith-filled obedience, moment by moment, as hard as it is, is building spiritual muscle and actually growing their discernment. And I put on your little outline, Hebrews 5.14. That's the, the text that goes along with that. that talks about we grow in our discernment by constant practice. Like the athlete who's constantly working out. That's painful. The workout is hard. He doesn't want to get up early. He doesn't want to restrain his diet. But that workout is making him stronger. Every time we choose to obey by faith, that's the rep. That's the workout. It's making us stronger. It's giving us more discernment in the week-in and week-out onslaughts of Satan and temptation. So we have to help people see that because they get in there and they think, now that I've triaged, now that I know my lies, now that I know the truth, it's going to be easy. And it is not. Just like the person who's never lifted a weight goes into the weight room. Like, they know they're supposed to lift weights now. They're going to be in pain. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. So we have to prep people for the pain is good. The difficulty is productive. It's working for you. It's building spiritual muscle. And that takes a while to settle in. You probably are like, yep, nope. <laughs> I get it. Uh, that reality takes a while to settle in. So be patient. And finally, walk with these people patiently as they learn to appropriate the truth. Pray for them. Help them to refocus when they're in the fog of deception, as they surely will be, be open with them, sharing examples from your own life, your own battles, your own deceptions, and how you've been working against those. Now, I'm going to wrap this point up here with with that. And I know that sounds like a lot. We're going to move forward. But the summary of these bullet points, don't get bogged down in the bullet points. The summary is you are teaching them to walk by faith, not by sight. You are teaching them to live by faith, not their feelings. They need to learn to live on God's word alone, above what they think or feel in that moment of temptation. And that may take weeks, months, or years, depending on the severity of the deception. Now, as they're learning to do this, they're very much on the mend. They're, toward, they're, they're, they're headed toward full restoration. They're learning the growth process. They're taking the log out of their own eye. They're on the way to becoming spiritual people. But at least two more steps need to happen, and we'll cover these really quick. First one, or fifth one, (laughs) fifth step, is you want to teach them to live fruitfully in all areas of life. I'm going to skim my notes here and see what I can leave out. Yeah, I think it's just tempting to to think myopically about change. So in this sense, you know, you you've stopped the bleed out. That was our that was you're getting them to own their sin. You're helping them to get like uh, survive that onslaught of temptation in that one particular area. Now, as they're growing and they're learning the growth process and what the growth process actually involves, now they're equipped to kind of like look up and look out at the rest of their life and see what other areas do I need to be living fruitfully in. How can I be redeeming the time that the Lord gives me? How can I be maximizing the gifting? Because now they're in the discovery process of like, hey, I'm actually growing. And that's sweet. And that's good. And that's exciting. And now there's like a whole new opportunity in front of you where you never thought you would be to be able to serve and help. And and so there's all these areas of life that are now open. In Ephesians 5, Paul says we have limited time. The days are evil. We need to learn to redeem the time that we have by growing and understanding what pleases the Lord. So think through the various, help them think through the various areas of their lives, like church, how are they investing there? How could they grow to become more useful, to meet basic needs? Family, how would Christ want them to interact in their homes, their apartments? How might they use their apartment for His glory rather than for the unfruitful works of darkness? School, work, how do they approach their studies? Why do they approach it that way? Do they have a job? Why or why not? How do they work? How do they view work? Singleness, dating, are they on the track to get married or not? Why? Do they understand what marriage is involved? Do they understand the benefits of that? Do they understand singleness? Do they understand how to maximize singleness? Just all of, the, all of those things. What would it look like to trust Christ in all these areas? And again, you're not talking about all of them at once. But this is the exciting part. This is, this is the path toward an incredibly fruitful meaningful, and eternally rewarding life. And that's what Christ has for all of his disciples. It's not going to be easy. And I'm also not saying that it's the restorer's job to make sure that they're perfect in every area. That's not what I'm saying. If you're the spiritual person in Ephesians in Galatians 6, you're like, man, when does my job ever end? You know, um, I'm not saying that it's that person's job to get them fully mature in every single area. But it is their job to get them thinking in these categories, looking up and out, beyond just the sin struggle that they've been involved in, and to get them involved, like we said earlier, in the wider church body, so that they, can, they can experiment with their gifts, they can see kind of where they can flourish and thrive. All right, and that brings us to our final step here. And this is really the, the, the last one, which is to help them, start to replicate in other people. To become a disciple maker. This is the very last stage of mending, and this is how you know someone has been mended. Because they are fully functional, and that full functionality looks like making other disciples. Just like Jesus commanded us in Matthew 28. But often, we will have to really encourage these folks to be proactive in this because of all those things we talked about before. Who am I? What do I know? But they've been equipped by their own sanctification already. Their growth is what's equipping them to be useful to others. We all feel inadequate, so will they, but it will mean the world to them if you come alongside them and affirm their growth And encourage them to help someone else along or maybe even kind of throw them into the pool. Hey, I got this person. They need somebody. I can't get to them. Can you meet with them? Let's just see how it goes. But, the odds are if they're really growing, they are already informally influencing people from that growth. That's the glory and the wisdom of God in how he designed his church. Because you cannot stop it. You can't you can't damper biblical discipleship when it gets in somebody. When biblical sanctification starts taking root and you start growing, there's no stopping it. They've learned to take the spe- they take the log out, and now they can see clearly to take the speck out. Or to use Paul's language in Ephesians four twenty five, since they've put away falsehood, they are now in a position to speak the truth to their neighbor. So. Let me just encourage you here. Last thing is, you know, these six practical steps as you're kind of looking at them at bird's eye view. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. That was probably my biggest fear in coming into this message is I'm going to give you, like, the pastor and pastoral experience and just drop on, like, here's how I help people on you. And you're thinking, never going to do that. You know, I, I can't. How, how do I even get there? That's the last thing I want when you're, when you're walking away from this because we're, we're I understand we're all in different stages in our development in Christ. So what I would encourage you to do is to use these steps as a litmus test for your own life. Where there's haze or uncertainty in your own life, that, that's probably where you want to focus in on. Does it make sense? Maybe you're not practicing some of these things consistently in your own life. Like, let's just take you know, number two, maybe you're kind of you're not really involved that much in the church. So we're not going to get somebody else to be involved if you're not involved. So it's, you got to start there, and that's fine. Maybe you you maybe you yourself are not responding to your sin biblically. So let's figure that out. Let's let's triage that. Let's help you. Let's help you think through that, so that you can start responding biblically. So you can help other people respond biblically to theirs. Maybe you don't know how to get down to the root issues of the lies that you're believing. Most people don't, which is a grief to me. I talk to people all the time outside of our congregation. It's like, I need what you're saying. I've never heard this before. Like, you've been in church your whole life. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's rare. So that's okay, though. We can help you. So m- my point is, wherever you're at, use this list as sort of a litmus test for kind of where you're at and just sort of slot into that process. And then take people as far as you can and good conscience in that process, like we talked about last week. All right. Does it make sense? Any just burning questions? Yeah. That's the out. That's the outworking. Yeah. There's a heart of it that says you have that bad habit. But you're calling it a habit, it's actually a sin pattern. You have that fleshly sin pattern that's offensive to God and harmful to others and yourself. And you're going to need to understand why you do that. So it's not just about robotic habit replacement. It's about understanding the heart of believing truth and having convictions land on you and saying, well, I've been deceived in that area. And now I'm going to put on the truth over here and I'm going to learn to live differently in light of this truth. So that, the just replacing of habits that, that leads to um, like a self-righteousness, uh, judgmentalism, because you're just thinking, oh, I've replaced these habits, so, so should they. And, but you don't really see that you might still be enslaved to that same deceptive sin pattern. You might still be self-exalting and loving the glory, love, fearing man, and that's what's motivating you to do everything you're doing. But you've never even touched that because you've just replaced your, your quote-unquote habits. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's probably hazy. If that's a new idea... It's okay. We're going to be talking a lot about that in the fall. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back there. Yeah. Good question, though. Yeah. It really depends. That's a really hard, answer to, uh, hard question to answer. But I would just say it's probably going to take longer than you think. Yeah. Um, think about yourself. How long does it take you? <laughs> so let's just like start there, okay? And let that humble us. But I think it, it, the reason I say it depends is because it depends on the zeal at which the person is willing to work, how hard they're willing to work at it. The ball's in the court of the per- person you're discipling. You can't expedite that process. But I've seen people transform. Because they just get after, they self-indict. They're just like, boom! This is me. I'm here. I need the truth, and they just go at it. And that's not legalism. It's like Paul would be like, Amen! Like, go and do likewise. You know, that's the that's that's amazing. Okay, so the ball's in the court of the person that's 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 pursuing Christ. Like, how zealous are they going to be in this process? And if they if they do the reps in the weight room, you know, they're gonna they're gonna gain muscle a lot faster than the guy who's like. You know, two weeks later they come back. Eh, you know, but if they're in there every day working out, maxing out, you know, they're gonna they're gonna gain muscle a lot faster than the other guy. So that's what I would say. It really depends on the zeal. Yeah, good question. Any more? Yeah. It. I'm thinking about believers, but it's a both and. So when they come in, your, your vision might sound a bit different. Not different, but it might start at a further point back. So I'm saying, hey, Christ has saved you, and he's for all these good purposes. You might just have to take one step further back and be like, hey, you're blind and dead in sin. You know, you got to get there. But help them see how their sin patterns are actually a manifestation of their deadness. But that Christ has the answer for them. So the faith, all that stuff we talked about is the exact same. You know, and then you just build on that process throughout. So yeah. It kind of doubles as a useful way to, to do evangelism as well. All right, I'm going to let you go. If you have more questions, I'm sure you do.